today, this morning, we get to uh, finish out our journey through the Proverbs. If you've brought your Bibles, would you turn there? Proverbs, last chapter, chapter 31. Proverbs, chapter 31. Now, I thought of a little bit of a, an irony, maybe. Um, maybe it's, it's not as true as I think it is, but I think when Mother's Day rolls around, if I don't preach a sermon specifically on mothers, some might think, man, you missed it. But any other day, if I speak specifically of mothers or wisdom, it's like, why'd you do that? And that's why I like to preach not according to calendars, but according to Scripture. And if the, in the wisdom of God, he decided to finish the book of Proverbs with a profile of a godly woman, an excellent wife, And that's how we're going to finish our series, because God chose it. And so let's pray as we enter this time. Father, we ask that you would give us grace as we approach this final section of this wonderful book, full of your wisdom, full of your knowledge. Uh, Sometimes it's exhausting to think about what wisdom looks like and how off we are sometimes with regard to fulfilling it and living it, but we pray that you would give us grace to do just that. I pray that every... um, woman in here would uh, sense you ministering to her heart as you shape her uh, toward wisdom. I pray that every guy in here uh, would not check out and think this is for women only, uh, but adopt the same values uh, of wisdom that you give us here, Father. We need you for it, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who were with us last week, you remember we finished the words of King Lemuel And that little paragraph, not really little, but that first section at the top of chapter 31 ended on this theme of justice. You remember that? And we saw that, uh, yeah, the world talks a lot about justice and social justice. um, And uh, sometimes we are tempted to go, ah, justice, I'm so sick of it. We shouldn't be. God is for justice. But we should be for justice God's way, not the world's way. And one of the big differences we see there is uh, women. In the minds of many, the only way to really cherish women is to flatten all the differences between women, women and men. Anything a man can do, a woman can do. Anything a man can be, a woman can be. And we've even gotten to the point where, hey, you, want, you, want, you can switch if you want. Because there really is no such thing. Well, that's worldly and not biblical. That's worldly and not biblical. In our culture, the prevailing thought is equity in all things or no equity at all. And that's not right. That's not true. People spurn the Bible because as you read through the Bible, men lead. Men lead. And that doesn't sit with um, feminist leanings very well. Men are designed to lead and expected to lead. We're not going to apologize for the Bible here. And women are expected to not overtake that role as God predicted in the beginning. As soon as sin entered, he's like, you know, man is going to lead, but women is going to want to take that from man. That's going to be the basic battle for the rest of your lives and for the rest of your marriage and for the rest of your society. So put that in the category of God called it. However... That doesn't put women down. 
And that, that's, what, that's what unbelievers fail to grasp. How can you have men leading, women supporting that leadership, and not have women as some second-class citizen? Women are put down. Women are shoved into a corner. That's what you're automatically doing if you don't have equal leadership roles. But yet you have the Bible speaking clearly against that. That because roles are different doesn't mean there is an equity in terms of value. In terms of what each brings to the table. So think about this. We're talking about an Old Testament, we're in the Old Testament, right? An Old Testament culture of patriarchy and male leadership. Okay? You, you don't have to be long in the Bible to see that that's the prevailing culture in the Old Testament times, which spans a humongous period, obviously. But think about this. We, we saw in the beginning of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Your mother's teaching. Not on Mother's Day. Every single day. He's not saying, here's my instruction, because I'm the leader of the house, and do what I say because I'm your dad, and then mom is there to, you know, cook and stuff. Your mom also instructs. And for many of us with failed leadership in our dads, we only had our mother's instruction. I know I wouldn't be here today standing before you doing what I'm doing were it not for my mother's instruction. But right out of the gate in Proverbs chapter 1, a father speaking to his son, he elevates the mother's teaching next to his. We see that even though throughout the book we see this woman folly, and she's nasty, right? Woman folly is like an adulteress who wants the son to be trapped, who wants to lure the son away from wisdom. And you might think, wow, why is, why is the bad guy got to be a woman? But the good guy's a woman because the contrast is with Lady Wisdom, right? Lady Wisdom calls. Lady Wisdom has a house. Lady Wisdom lays a foundation. Listen to Lady Wisdom, not woman folly. So it's, it's not anti-women at all. At all. And we see that even though throughout the Proverbs there's adulterous women to avoid, there's also virtuous women who exemplify wisdom. And then the Proverbs end with the profile of a godly woman. One commentator pointed this out. In the Hebrew Bible, the books go in a different order than in our English Bibles. And in the Hebrew Bibles, Bible, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, is followed immediately by the book of Ruth, who was said to be a worthy woman. So Proverbs ends with this profile of a godly woman, then goes right into the book of Ruth. And in chapter 3, verse 11, she's called a worthy woman, an able woman. Then right after Ruth, you get the Song of Songs where this commentator, as he describes it, a woman is the main speaker and she initiates the relationship. The Bible's not anti-women whatsoever. Obviously, women are equal in importance throughout the Bible. And today, we're going to learn about wisdom through the lens of a profile of a godly woman, specifically a godly wife, what a godly wife, a wise wife looks like. So this isn't applicable only to wives, but through the lens of what a godly wife looks like, we see application for all of us, because all of us need to live into the wisdom of the Proverbs. And you remember, this isn't from a woman to a woman. This is still from a dad to a son on how to look out for the right kind of woman. So this is not a time for guys to check out, especially those of you uh, who are still looking for the right woman. 
who should I marry? What she should be like? If you wrote top five things, would they match anything in here in Proverbs 31 at all? If not, that's a problem. And for those of you who are women, you're single, this is the kind of person you're trying to live to be. Those of you who are married, not too late. <laughs> this, is still the t- this is still the profile that we're trying to live into. So let's, let's dive in. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 31. We're going from verse 10 to the end. And we're going to look at this profile of wisdom. We see a lot of the attributes of wisdom that we talked about throughout the series in Proverbs. That's why it's really helpful that we walk through the Proverbs and then culminate it in this chapter because you're going to see lots of those themes kind of pouring into this profile of a godly wife. So broadly, we're going to see what it looks like to live wisely, but we're going to look at that through this more narrow lens of marriage, specifically the wife. And it doesn't look like an oppressed woman lonely in a corner while the boys are out doing everything. Nor does it look like a woman who takes over the roles of men. She knows her lane, and she runs that lane hard. That's a godly woman. And we can all learn from that profile. Proverbs chapter 31, let's look at just the first couple verses, first three verses, 10, 11, 12. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So when you look at the beginning of this profile as it sets it up, it talks about a wife that is the greatest treasure a husband can have. A wise wife is the greatest treasure a husband can have. A wise wife. Not what's in your garage, not your man cave. She's far precious than anything you can keep in your big old liberty safe. An excellent wife is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. How many of us embroiled in terrible marriages would just pay anything to just have that? Just just trust. She gains that. She earns that. And he has no lack of gain. Really, interestingly, this section on the, the profile of a godly woman starts out by saying she's powerful. The word excellent there, it's kind of hard to translate. Excellent's probably not the best. I usually... I think the ESV does a really great job with translation. Some might say noble. It means an able wife. But if you just read able wife, you're like, able to do what? You know, in English, when you think of ability, you just think of ability to a a certain thing. Ability to do pull-ups, ability to drive a truck. Like what? We think of a specific skill. But ability just means power. Able versus unable. Capable competent. There's strength there. So she is an able woman who can find. Able. She's powerful. She accomplishes things. And it's almost like a military kind of power. I won't point all of this out throughout the Proverbs and make the sermon too long, but just one example in verse 11, where it says, he will have no lack of gain. The word there is plunder. She goes out and plunders and he gets the spoils. It's ability, plundering. You know, it's, it's one author pointed out that there was a particular form of poetry, 
uh, common in these times of military conquest, the profile of a victorious conqueror. And there's lots of parallels between those kind of poems and this, sort of presenting this woman as conquering for her household, conquering for her husband, and he gains a point. Not literally fighting people, killing them, and robbing them, but, but in the things that she does, she gains for the household, and she gains for the husband, and he, he lacks none of what she plunders. It's for him. Oh, that's countercultural. She does him good. All her plunder, verse 11, is for him. He, ha- he, he gains nothing. That doesn't mean she doesn't get anything out of it, but he certainly gets things out of it. She doesn't have her separate account that he can't touch, and he has a separate account that she can't touch. She gains it, it's for him. Well, some of you might be like, well, I don't know. How, how do you get there? Trust, verse 11a. Verse 12, she does him good. She doesn't do him harm. All the days of her life. It's a commitment. It's not when he behaves. Right? It's a commitment. All the days of her life. It's based on the marital vows. To the end. To the end. She does him good. As I think about marriages in general, I think sometimes marriages can be rife with resentment. And we see here, picture of a wife who's for her husband. So when she's getting together in the circles with the other ladies and they're all throwing their men under the bus, she doesn't. She speaks well of him. She thinks about how she can do him good, not harm, to the end. And this is why he trusts her completely. Interestingly, Again, you know, we think about the Old Testament as this patriarchal, male-dominated setting. I mean, in, in many senses, it is. Where the husband primarily provides for the family, right? And that's true. And that's good. But even here, she provides too. She provides too. He will have no lack of gain. It doesn't matter what he does to provide. If she tears at the marriage, not doing him good, doing him harm, and doesn't work toward the flourishing of the household. She does work toward the flourishing of the household. So it's not guy goes off, works really hard, she just has to keep herself busy throughout the day. No, she plunders. She plunders and nets some gain for the house. And that's how the Proverbs start off. That's exactly where we begin. She is this wonderful treasure, and she's the greatest treasure a husband can find. Now in 13 to 19... We see why she's such a treasure and how she goes about plundering, right? How she goes about making, uh, being productive for her husband, for the house, and for herself, the whole family. Look at 13 through 19. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ship of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night. And provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. 
And in our day and age, we may be like, a distaff and a spindle, what's going on? Just, just really ancient weaving and sewing, right? The huge staff that would have all the cloth on it, and then the spindle that spins the thing. I don't know, what, I don't know how to do it, but, you know, you see these pictures and these drawings. She is putting together garments and clothing, right, cloth. That's why she's gathering wool in verse 13 and working with her willing hands in verse 13. So we see a couple things. She works really hard physically, okay? We see that in 13b. She works with willing hands. Check this out. In 15a, she rises before the sun comes out. And then in 18b, the sun goes to bed and she's still up. That's hard work. 16b, with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Verse 17, strength. Her arms are made strong. She makes her arms strong. We could go, well, that's figurative. Well, it's not that figurative if you've got to hold a distaff in one hand and use a big old spindle in the other hand, and you don't have a sewing machine. No, it's quite literal. Her arms are strong. You see in verse 19 that she's working with her hands to put the things together that she's going to sell. So she works hard physically, and it's not just going to the gym to be physically strong, but it's to be productive. She's industrious and thrifty. We see that in verses 13 and 19. That's why she's collecting wool and flax to work with her hands, and then she's making stuff out of it in verse 19. She's out there buying stuff, right? She considers a field and buys it. Uh, you know, this is a kind of marriage where it's not the husband does the purchasing only. Right? She's out there, or like, you're allowed to buy groceries, everything else is me. She's out there buying real estate? Does that sound like a woman that's shoved in the corner? I don't think so. I don't think so. She's out there buying something as important as real estate, as property. She's selling. Verse 18, she perceived that her merchandise is profitable. She's smart. She's shrewd. She knows this will make some money, so she sells it. How's she going to sell it? Well, she's got to work hard to produce it with that distaff and that spindle. Well into the night, verse 18. She keeps the lamp going so she can produce. So as I thought about this, again, thinking about maybe sometimes typical scenario in a struggling marriage. He comes home from a long day's work, and to him, he's been sitting around all day, or she's, she's been sitting around all day, like in his mind, she's been sitting around all day. She hasn't had to deal with an overbearing boss. She hasn't had to outwork younger competition and deal with that stress of losing your position, getting retired early. She hasn't had to deal with having to impress a potential buyer, etc., so he demands more of her, right? He comes home, and he's like, why is this still dirty? Why are the kids out of control? How come dinner hasn't been started? What in the world have you been doing all day? Conversely, she might be at home juggling little kids all day long, trying to get their naps going. They're vomiting. They're screaming. They're crying. They're, she's trying to get them fed. The meter guy shows up. He rang the bell, unexpected. She runs and grabs a robe to throw it over her vomit shirt. And then he comes home from his controlled, scheduled environment, speaking with adults all day who can reason, who don't need constant attention. Why are you making dinner? Obviously, 
he has to have patience with her and understand what she's dealing with. She, on the other hand, needs to understand that she has a responsibility to be productive for the family. So this is where communication is necessary to get on the same page, not simply putting out fires all day, but to actually to be productive. And the infant and toddler years are a little different. Infant and toddler years, you don't see anything in Proverbs 31 about her juggling little, little tiny infants. That would be really hard to hold a distaff in one hand, a spindle in the other hand, and then a baby in your lap. So it seems like she's a little past that phase. But I think maybe some couples haven't ever talked about that past that phase. What happens is the children start getting older and she's getting bored while he's working. I think that's where this chapter really starts to hit. And I think maybe some couples need to get on the same page and talk. What can be productive? How could you be industrious? We communicate with patience and understanding, not you know, trying to understand that other person's world and that other person's experience. Now, if you look at this, you're like, man, plant a vineyard, buy real estate. I don't know what a distaff is. I, I don't think this passage is calling you to fulfill being a hard, industrious worker in the same ways that she did. But you might have your own particular talents, gifts, skills, resources that, that you can do to be an industrious worker in the home, outside of the home. She's in and out. She's both in the home and outside of the home being industrious on both ends. But, to use something outdated, I guess, she's not sitting around scrapbooking all day either. So, the man, the husband, comes home and finds that she has been gaining for the household. I think a word to men, briefly here, before we move into verse 20 and following. Men that believe that uh, income to the home should only come through his salary, I think needs to take another look at passages like this one. Her industriousness does not threaten your leadership unless you're a weak leader. Her hard work, her hard work and her wisdom applied to gain for the household doesn't threaten your position as a leader of the household unless you're a weak leader. He trusts her. He trusts her completely. They're on the same page. And then we see that her hard work and productivity allow her to care for other people. Look at verses 20 to 22. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So she's fulfilling the Proverbs, right? We just left the social justice theme, so to speak, at the, at the end of the words of King Lemuel. And she's fulfilling it in verse 20. Not just for people outside of her home, inside her home, verse 21. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Winter season's coming, she's gotten everybody coats. She's ready for what's coming ahead. She makes bed coverings for herself, her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now I want you to notice the combination of caring for needy people outside of her home and having plenty for herself and for the people inside her home and that the two don't cancel each other out. Generosity toward other people does not sacrifice your home. And a well-supported home gives you the opportunity to be generous to people outside of your home. So let me just break that down maybe in a different way. If you feel like you're having a hard time caring for needs outside of your home, needy people, you, you come across needs, and you have a hard time being generous toward them because... 
well, what are we going to do? I can't, if I give them food, what's going to be in my pantry? And you see that this woman firing on all cylinders has both going on. Meeting the needs of the needy person outside of the home doesn't threaten the pantry inside of the home, doesn't threaten clothes being on the backs of the people who depend on her inside the home. But conversely, she's so well-stocked inside the home, she has the ability to be generous outside the home. So the two work in tandem, as you see throughout the Proverbs. Throughout the Proverbs. As you're generous, God gives. As God gives and you're faithful, you have the ability to be generous. So she exemplifies both of those things happening at the same time, and wisdom and hard work make this possible. Some of us could be more generous if we had the wherewithal to be generous. Well, how do you do that? Throughout the Proverbs, not just surprise in chapter 31, hard work. You've heard me hammering at home as we've walked through the Proverbs, and we've barely skimmed the surface in those middle chapters of Proverbs. Hard work is not an American trait. Hard work is not the boomer generation. Hard work is the Bible. It is the Bible. So she exemplifies her hard work, and what's the fruit of it? Her household is well supplied. She can even meet the needs of people outside of the household because she applies wisdom. She applies wisdom. So as we look at the rest of these verses, 23 to 31, we kind of see a recap covering a lot of what we talked about already. This is why her hard work at being productive makes her a treasure. So here's the principle that we gain from this chapter. Wisdom is exemplified. You show wisdom in your life, in my life, when we work hard to provide for people around us. That's the essential baseline truth. It's not you must buy wool and flax. That's the exact materials that she, this passage is demanding of us. You have to go out this afternoon and find some real estate to buy. That's, what she, that's how she is applying the principle, but the principle that she's applying is that wisdom means we work hard for the people that depend on us. And that's not for men only. That's the principle. So we see this sort of recap in 23 to 31. Let's read through it briefly. This is why hard work and being productive makes anyone a treasure and makes her a treasure. 23 to 31. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Everyone knows that he has this treasure. Verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. That's due to her productivity. She's making stuff and then she's selling it. Verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Notice, wealth is not why she laughs at the time to come. It's the wealth that she made through her strength and dignity. Dignity, of course, is important because lack of dignity will rob you. As we have seen throughout the Proverbs, the get-rich-quick schemes, the rob-the-other-guy so you can pad your pocket will eventually take you down. But wisdom... We'll see a slow and steady progress. We, we've covered that. And she's producing that. She's living into that. But it's not just about what's in her bank account. It's her strength and it's her dignity. Look at verse 26. 
Nothing to do with what she does with her hands. She opens her mouth with wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The kind of person that can fulfill the Proverbs 31 profile is the kind of person that speaks godliness. So there's an inner character that underlines it so that we don't work hard because our dad used to beat us when we didn't work hard. We work hard because it's godly to do so. And how do you know someone's godly? Well, how do they speak? The stuff that comes out of the mouth exposes what's inside the heart, as Jesus taught us. So she's got it going on from the inside out. And maybe for some of us, that's where we need to begin, a character check that then ripples out into how, we're review- how we are viewing our productivity for the household. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She's not sitting around, she's moving and producing. She's not sitting around, she's moving and producing. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. She is treasured by the whole family. A husband gets to brag about her, praise her. The children rise up and call her blessed. I know for many of us, we are waiting for that to kick in for our children. Think about when that kicked in for you. You probably weren't eight when you really realized what your parents did for you. Be patient. Be patient. Work hard. One day, hopefully, they can rise up with the children of verse 28. Husbands, we need to let our women know where they surpass wisdom, where they do excellently, and not just keep it to our stoic, quiet selves, but say it. Verse 29 is important. Verse 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Uh, Young men, Imagine a scenario where you have two girls in your life, they like you. And uh, you're too cool to play the whole date them both at the same time and be that idiot that ends up on TikTok. So you choose one. One of them's got all the exterior beauty. She's on your arm. When you walk into a room, everyone's heads are turning. She's charming. She laughs at your jokes, ha, 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 even your dumb ones. It's an honest laugh. She's charming, and she's beautiful. She doesn't fear the Lord, though. Conversely, you have someone else who's like, you're dating her? Hmm. You show the picture to mom and dad, they're like, okay. But then when they meet her, she's godly. That's the right choice. That's the right choice. The Bible's not against being charming, winsome. The Bible's not against beauty. But given the choice in that scenario, the wise choice is the person who fears the Lord. That's the person that is to be praised. That's the person that's going to raise your children well. That is the person who's going to exhibit wisdom. That is the person you're going to be able to trust with your house with your family, with your marriage. We put the premium price on the wrong things oftentimes. 
and as a word of encouragement to women, I'm not saying walk around and be as ugly as you possibly can. I'm just saying, if you had the choice to skip your time with the Lord in the morning or a half hour of putting on makeup, which is the godly choice? And if you have a godly husband, which one does he want you to choose? Guys, we should be checking up on our wives, not, can you buy a cream or something? We should be checking up going, how have your quiet times been? That's the jewel. That's the treasure of a godly woman. We get it backwards constantly trying to fight aging and erase our wrinkles and color our hair. And then you read the Proverbs and it's like, you know that gray hair that comes in? It's the crown of glory on somebody's head. Because they've lived years. And as you live years, you gain what? Wisdom. That's the treasure. Not a lack of wrinkles. That's stupid. I'm not saying go home and throw all your makeup away. I'm asking you to compare things next to each other. Which one am I pursuing? Charm and beauty or fearing the Lord? It's fearing the Lord. We should think a little bit less of ourselves. Think a little bit less of the importance of how we look. And recognize that the way we want our children to rise up and call us blessed, the way we want our spouses to proclaim that we are excellent is because we fear the Lord. We exhibit wisdom. And it shows, verse 31, the last verse, give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Everyone's going to see it. Everyone's going to see. Maybe when you were 18, she didn't turn all the heads in the room, but when you're 80, she turns all the heads in the room. Why? Because they look back and they see how they made the wrong choice and you made the right one. Because she exhibits wisdom and everyone in the gates knows it. Now, I know many, I hear this all of the time, many people say, well, this passage can't be taken literally because no woman could ever fulfill such a profile as presenting an ideal. It's an ideal that no one person could ever fulfill. They're, they're trying to take the pressure off the women. If we were reading through this and you're like, goodness, I've got to go to Michael's, <laughs> I, I need to get a, a, a license from Berkshire Hathaway or something, you know, like, I've got a lot of work ahead of me. I think a lot of commentators, preachers, Christians want to kind of take that pressure off and going, look, it's, it's an ideal. Nobody can ever live into that. And it kind of gives us a sense of relief, like, okay. I don't think that's accurate. I want to give you a few reasons why I don't think that's accurate. First, it starts off by telling us that such a woman is not easy to find, not dime a dozen, hard to find. It starts off by saying such a thing. It doesn't say this is impossible, but here are several things. Pick one. As long as you pick one or two of this list of ten or whatever, you know, you're good. An excellent wife is hard to find. They aren't just everywhere. So I think it starts off by telling us, yes, this is really difficult, but you should aspire to it. We don't do that with the rest of the Proverbs. Eh, Proverbs 10, I mean, it's an ideal, but nobody lives Proverbs 10. We don't do that with any other passage. Of course it wants us to live into this ideal. So first, I think, look, it starts off by telling us this woman is hard to find. Not that she doesn't exist. Second, 
This is talking about categories that women should aspire to, not the exact examples. So we shouldn't leave here going, I need wool, I need flax, right? I need to go look at the, the real estate uh, availability in the local community. But rather, women should aspire to earn the trust of their husbands, earn the praise of their children, work hard, be productive for the family. Not every woman's going to plant a vineyard, right, or sell textiles, but in your way, in the way that God has equipped you and designed you, you can fulfill the categories of this profile, not the specific ways she fulfilled it in her ancient time. So that we need to keep in mind. You might be like, I don't know, I don't know how to sew. That's okay, what do you do? Third, this is why we need Christ. Every scripture we encounter doesn't immediately grant you relief. Oh, good, I'm doing that already. Do you read your Bibles like that? I read the Bible and I'm like, even if I am doing it, I'm probably not doing it to the level that this passage is calling me to do it. Like, I don't get a sense of relief immediately when I read the Bible. I sense challenge. I sense a challenge. I I sense a call to step it up. Here's the bar. Here's where it really is. And I'm like, okay, I got to get there. But I don't go, well, that's an ideal, right? It's always a challenge. And that is why we need Christ. That's why we do communion. Because I can't be a virtuous husband. You can't be a virtuous wife. Unless we're in Christ, when Christ abides in us, he produces the fruit. John 15. And so we don't look at this and give ourselves a pass, go, well, nobody could live that. We look at this and go, okay, I can't be that, but for Christ. But for Christ. And if he indwells me, if he has purchased me, as we saw with, with communion, God has done something in Christ, not to just forgive my past, but to transform my future. Not just to forgive my past, but to transform my future. I can live into the things that he calls me to live into from Scripture without giving myself a past going, eh, nobody does that. Instead, going, Christ does that, and he lives in me. He empowers me. I can live into that. Fourth and last reason why I think we should accept this challenge full on and not excuse it away is that some of us can think, I think all of us probably, we look around ourselves, we can think of current examples. I think of my wife, and many of you know all the things that she does, all the things that she is, all the things that she's been doing, even through the busy toddler years. To not further embarrass her in front of everybody, I think of my own mom, who worked tirelessly, long shifts, dealing with cranky customers who need to refill on their meds, at the pharmacy, literally taking on thieves, talking down gangsters afterwards as she's closing up her little four foot ten self. I was there, overseeing employees, and somehow still made time to prepare meals, take me jogging, take me swimming, teach me how to ride a bike, kept the house immaculate, crocheted blankets, sewed outfits. I do not know how she did it. But she exists. Some of y'all met her. I think of many of you who work tirelessly inside and outside of the home. This isn't supposed to make us feel like we're reading something impossible. This is supposed to make us feel like it's a charge calling us to something that is possible in Christ. It is possible in Christ. We're not reading an impossible fantasy. It's a bar that we can aspire to in our own ways. And maybe we're a little bit 
far from where this is calling us. Maybe some of us are like, man, I, I'm really far from this. One step at a time. Right? One step at a time. Take a cue from these Proverbs, whether you're a woman, a man, a husband, a wife, single, married. Take a cue from this and ask yourself, am I being industrious in this world the way God has called me to be? Remember in the garden, God didn't create the garden, then sin entered, and then God's like, you know what your punishment is? Work. We think about it sometimes that way, right? Adam and Eve were just, they were just wandering around, you know what I'm saying? Cuddling squirrels, naming animals, staring off into the sunset, and then sin entered, and now you have to work. That is not how Genesis opens. It opens by God creating Adam and Eve, commanding them to work, because work is good, and work is beautiful, and it's designed into us to work. Then sin entered and made work hard. But work is not a result of sin. Lazy work is a result of sin. Difficult work is a result of sin. But work is good because God created it. And we work in our households, outside of our households. We're productive as people that are wise and fear the Lord. We exemplify it with the hard work that we put in to provide for the people around us. And that's each of us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you challenge us with Scripture, that you use beautiful passages like this to show us a little bit further, a little bit more, what it looks like to be wise. So as we close in the song, allow our hearts to rise to the challenge, not depending on our own strength and our own skills, but depending on Christ for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in the song.